Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. We're back for episode 42 of Plastic yep. Model Mojo. Yep. And uh, it's going well for any number of reasons that uh, that we'll get through, we'll get uh, to throughout this episode. But uh, I got to say, the, the mojo is running strong. The model sphere is hitting on all cylinders. And my only problem is that I don't have enough time to do everything I want to do. <laughs> do we ever no absolutely not but it was good to see you on july 4th uh, it was we had a good time yes we did very I nice mani- i managed to fill up your teenage boys with uh with enough food that kept them kept them full for at least an hour just about an hour then they were hungry again <laughs> <laughs> well you mentioned model sphere what you got going on um well uh, as far as uh, my modeling's moving forward. We'll get to to that in the the bench uh, section of the episode. Uh, I'm feeling the juice. I'm feeling the the desire to model, the the joy that I get out of it when I do model. So, you know, all in all, that's all pretty darn positive. Again, the only thing I'm struggling with is trying to make sure that I get enough time to actually get in and model. How about you? Well, I'm getting ready for the Nationals, Dave. I'm trying to get our our gear ready to go and make sure we got all those bases covered. And looking through uh, all the emails of folks who say they're going to stop by and say hi. Yep, yep. Looking forward well, to it. Yep. You know, we need you need to go to the local Hooters and hire a couple of girls as roadies for for to pack all our stuff out to Vegas. How's that for an idea? Ah. Uh, I think on some level that's a good idea, and on some level it's a very, very bad one. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we could sneak that past the wives. I don't think so. <laughs> and besides, I'm not sure Hooters wait- waitresses would make good roadies. They may not. So, uh, Mike, as if I didn't know, what is your modeling fluid of choice tonight? Well, it's a great <laughs> story, and I know what you're drinking too tonight. Uh, yeah. We are... Well, I am. If you're not, you can fess up later. Uh, Weller Special Reserve. Oh, God. Are you enjoying that? Yes. Uh, it's it's a another bourbon from the Weller family out of, uh, it's currently being distilled at uh, Buffalo Trace down in Frankfort, Kentucky, uh, where I don't work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Frankfort, that is, not uh, Buffalo Trace. <laughs> right. Uh, and this... Uh, it's really good, and uh, this comes to us an, at, for, through an interesting avenue. Um, right before the weekend, Fourth of July weekend, uh, when I was, we made it apparent on our prior episode that uh, I'd be joining you in Louisville for your Fourth of July pool party and cookout. A listener local here from uh, Versailles, Kentucky, spelled just like Versailles, but we don't pronounce it that way in Kentucky. That's right, uh, Mister Ethan Curd. Uh, he's a, actually a car modeler out of Versailles and happens to work at Buffalo Trace Distillery. 
And uh, he said he had a gift for us to kick off the holiday weekend with. And I met him on the way to your house, and he handed me a brown bag with uh, all the distillery's logo on it. I didn't know what was in it until I pulled it out. And uh, Ethan, I can't thank you enough. That was a very generous gesture, and we are sure enjoying it. Amen, brother. Amen. Yes, I am drinking Weller Special Reserve as well. When Mike got here, he uh, uh, had the full bottle, and as it happened, I had an empty Weller bottle that I had saved. So uh, Mike poured half into into my bottle, and uh, this is the first time I, I've I was afraid that if I had any before tonight's episode, I would have drunk it all by the time we got to the tonight's episode. So even though I've had this since July 4th, this is the first time that uh, I've had it from the current uh, current stash. And this stuff, th- as I told Mike before we started recording, when you taste this stuff, it makes you wonder if all of the other stuff you've been drinking is really bourbon. <laughs> this 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 stuff is magical. It just smooth. And Mike tells me that the Weller Twelve Year, which I haven't had, is even better. Well, the flavor profile is very similar, but the Weller Twelve, in my to my palate, doesn't have the heat. So mm-hmm. it's just a little more mellow from the age. But uh, the 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 flavoring, the palate is very similar. But uh, Ethan. Thanks, man. I'm, I'm sure we'll be in touch. We we salute you, sir. You 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 are doing the Lord's work. Thank you very very much. All right. Well, it was looking like listener mail was going to be a little little light first week into this fortnight, as our Australian friends say. Uh, but in the last uh, oh ten days or so, it kind of kind of self corrected. It's probably the hol- the holiday weekend. It probably was so. Uh, we got lots of listener mail. Some of it's going to have some good discussion here. Good. All right. Well, first up is Mr. Kenneth Reed, and Kenneth is from Tuttle, Oklahoma. And uh, he's been enjoying catching up on the podcast and uh, says it honestly got his mojo flowing. Great. Ken says he's up to episode 28, uh, where he mentioned, mentioned possibly getting some merchandise. And uh, he says he believes it was you that said something about a PMM tumbler or coaster. And, uh, He'd love to be able to get some. I I am working on that project. I do plan in the near future, hopefully, to get some plastic model mojo uh, bourbon tumblers produced. But with, as I said, life's been real busy lately, so that project's on the back burner, but it will be happening. You got any coasters left? I've got coasters, so forward me his email and I'll we'll get him a, co- a coaster and sticker. All right. That sounds good. Up next is uh, Bob Hallinger, and he doesn't provide his location, but he's got a 717 zip code. So that's somewhere in- You uh, mean area code? Uh, yes, area code. That's somewhere in South Central Pennsylvania. So that would be like uh, Harris, Harrisonburg. Harrisburg. York, Gettysburg, those kind of places. Yeah. What's he got going on? He's enjoying our episodes with uh, John Miller of From Model Paint Solutions, and that prompted him to contact John, order a Harder and Steamback package with all the goodies. Nice. <laughs> and he says he gave us full credit. So, well, he, Doc, Doctor Strange Brush will be on an up an episode upcoming episode fairly soon. So, if you've enjoyed the past ones, there's another one coming. All right, and he says uh, all your work for IPMS USA has worked. He's uh, 
joined the IPMS and he's registered for Vegas. Yes. Got another one. And he will attend his first local chapter meeting, uh, Central PA IPMS, about 45 Great. minutes from his home. Well, 45 minutes. That's not too bad. I mean, if you lived in a big city, that might be 12 miles, right? Yeah, exactly. That is not <laughs> bad at all. That uh, is not bad at all. And that's, that's closer than I am to our club. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And and I'm telling you guys that the if you can part, find and participate in a local chapter, you should do so. It's it just it adds another dimension to your to your modeling hobby. So and you'll make I, a lot of friends. You will, yes. And after twenty five years, you can start a, a podcast, podcast. Or, or whatever whatever we're doing in twenty five years. <laughs> yeah, that's right. God yeah. knows what it'll be then. Yeah, it'll be a sonic cast or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> beamed directly into your brain. John Ozike is back from Pahrump, Nevada. And uh, he heard our conversation about uh, first airbrushes and well, it was episode 41. And yeah. he uh, mentions his first airbrush was a Badger 150, which isn't bad for first no. airbrush. No, that's... Oh, it, it was the aerosol cans we were talking about. Oh, yeah. And how they would freeze up and uh, run out quickly and, and provide uneven spray pressures. Well, what he did, <laughs> what he says he did uh, was he inflated a, an inner tube with a bicycle pump. And hook the airbrush directly to that and yep. put it under his bench and actually put his foot on it to control yeah. the pressure. <laughs> I have heard of that. that uh, that's old school. That's the way we used to do it back in, in the old days. Um, well, that was before my time. The, another trick was taking those uh, pressurized cans and putting them in a uh, tin of hot water. To get more spray out of them, you'd get more. You get it all yes. at once. <laughs> well, you you did that to 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 get the the after you had used it partially. You did that to to get the rest out at a better pressure. All right. Up next is William Chill, and William Chill is from Sweden. That is a great name. <laughs> In the history of names, that's a great name, Bill Chill. Bill Chill from Sweden. Hope he's chill in Sweden. Yeah. Probably, what, 70 there, maybe? Maybe. Uh, he's going back through the back catalog, too, and he's up to episode 26. And uh, that's when we had a listener talk about how to manage several hobbies uh, when they're competing for your time. And he says it sounded harsh, but uh, too many competing influences get gets draining. And, it, you know, my advice was, well, I don't know if it was advice or my example was that I ended up giving up one of them. Yeah. Uh, and he's got the kind of a, a checklist or well, not a checklist, but, a but, a possible solutions list of ways to do this. Uh, one is to accommodate all of them by setting up a schedule and focus on one activity per month or week and set up a rotation or what. And he tried this and as a re- result, uh, not too successful. If he's supposed to be painting a month, a particular month, and I mean on canvas or whatever, not right. model, model painting, uh, but he was in the mood to do writing or modeling or vice versa. It just all kind of fell apart, right? Yeah, because because hobbies are that is a great point. Hobbies are in in some respects mood based, and so if if you're in the mood to do one thing, and you know your sched you've got a schedule, and your schedule says do something else, that can take away from the enjoyment of the hobby, which is the point of the whole thing. True. That's <laughs> the second, the second uh, method to deal with this. 
kind of blew up in his face too. He created a matrix of activities and scoring them on a scale of one to 10 <laughs> with factor with categories such as enjoyment factor, sense of community, potential for secondary income, cost, intellectual stimulation, et cetera. And then adding up the score. And for his result, it was painting and writing that scored the highest, uh, <laughs> but he didn't want to give up modeling. <laughs> so, so that didn't work out, work out either. Well, <laughs> that, and that just goes to show you head and heart are not always in the same place. That's true. I mean, uh, especially uh, when you throw that secondary income nugget in there, that, that can really skew things. Yes. Well, and, and, you know, uh, we've all known modelers who have gone into the business of modeling in one way or another. And that's a real hard balance to, to handle because once it becomes your job and a source of income, you know, then no matter what mood you're in, you, you got you, you, you've got to get to work and it becomes work. So yeah, balancing multiple hobbies is really, really difficult. But my, my advice to anybody who's dealing with that is do what you're in the mood to do when you're in the mood to do it. And, and, you know, if, if that's what you do, you're going to get enjoyment. And that's the whole point of, of any hobby is to get enjoyment and relaxation. And if you're not getting enjoyment and relaxation out of it, step back and maybe reassess a little bit. Although I'm not sure doing a spreadsheet, man, that's hardcore. That is. That's like uh, picking a job or house or something. Yeah, exactly. We can we could see the uncle doing that, couldn't we? I could see me doing it, and it had the same result. It's hard to be honest with yourself doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. So the net of it, he stopped doing photography. That wasn't in his DNA. His his you know his hobby interest kind of DNA. Right. Uh, and he stopped writing mostly. He was progressing, but he's thrown thrown out his ambitions to get published. Mm-hmm. You know, the modeling is, is, is you kind of do it for yourself. And he kind of uh, got to the point where uh, he's decided to be a modeler. Well, good. And, and one thing, you know, he might consider is uh, there is a subgenre in modeling where, I mean, there are these magazines and blogs, as, as we talked with Stephen Lee last episode. That's an outlet for your 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 writing skills or writing abilities. Stephen just started a blog, and that's where he wrote. And when he had longer form ideas, he wrote, and it satisfied his writing craving as well as the working it into his modeling. So maybe that's a maybe that's an option for Mister Chill. It could be. And he closes with uh, saying, uh, I guess the answer is you need to throw some things out. What's in your DNA? What is the purpose or what purpose does the activity fill? Choose the one that most adequately fills the space. The ones that do not give them a proper burial. (laughs) (laughs) That could be harsh, but uh, some people don't multitask very well. And maybe maybe they got too many hobbies like I did. Yeah. I mean, I I gave up one. I don't I haven't missed it very much anyway. Yeah. Owen Meyer. He's local. Simpsonville, Kentucky. I know where it is. Uh, he enjoyed the latest episode with Stephen Lee and uh, all the commentary about the hobby. And I think uh, what he most liked was the comparing the model railroading to military modeling and the sheer cost of getting into model railroading versus like armor modeling or something. Uh, and he said, he said Stephen's uh, advice to a newcomer in model railroading to go find 10 grand 
had him laughing out loud. Well, it's absolutely true. I mean, you know, you you can get into modeling with a $8.95 Airfix kit and some glue and an Exacto and a paintbrush and a couple of pots of paint. You know, not a big investment. But as far as model railroading, that initial that that initial investment for even the smallest of potential layouts is just oh, yeah. tremendous. Well, and he, he throws another twist in there is that uh, if you're into plastic modeling, if your interest in genre or scale changes, that's really no big deal in terms of cost, right? Right. Well, I mean, minor. You could, I mean, if you decide all of a sudden to start buying 30 second scale kits, you'd have a cost impact to that, to your stash. Right. But, right. but uh, you know, if you're in model railroading and you want to change eras from the mid 1950s to the modern era, well, guess what you get to do? <laughs> you get to sell, sell all your equipment for, for pennies on the dollar and then go buy it all again for, for dollar on the dollar. Yeah. So it's a, it's a pretty big, hairy deal. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And another thing is space. I mean, if even a small, well, I don't know lay- about that. even a small layout, takes up a lot of space. Now you and I both have dedicated modeling areas. Yes. But but which you could at least with mine you could put a decent size layout in it. But nobody has to have that much room. You can model at a desk. Well, we've had know. listener mail to that effect. I've got I got no space, what do I do? And we've tried to help them out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can have a uh one of those watchmaker boxes or woodworker boxes. Yep. That you that you haul out and you put on your kitchen table. In fact, uh, my understanding is that a lot of the folks in the UK model at their kitchen tables because homes, most many homes in the UK don't have basements, and basements are where a lot of guys end up with their man cave slash model room. And so, a lot of modelers in the UK model at their kitchen table. So you don't have to have a ton of space, whereas, you know, you've got to have a dedicated space for model railroading. Yes, you do. And he closes saying his modeling fluid of choice is an AL8. Is what? AL8. AL81. <laughs> AL81. Oh, God. For, for, for the vast majority of the listeners who aren't in uh, central Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> L81 is a uh, a local soft drink, uh, kind of a ginger ale-ish kind of thing. Um, I'm not from Kentucky, so. Oh, and you can have mine. I'll just yes. put it that way. My saying of choice is that L81 is bottled with pride by the Clark County Water Treatment Plant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do not like the taste of L81. My wife, believe it or not, however, likes it as the mixer in a, co- in a gin cocktail. Huh? Well, ALA- you know. L81 and gin. Maybe there's a redemption after all. Well, you know, you put alcohol in anything, you can, you know, it uh, improves it. I don't know. <laughs> Almost anything. Almost anything. You'll have to put a link into to the L81 website just so people can see what we're talking about. Uh, a lot of people like it, so they're doing okay, despite me not. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> they're, they're, they're selling it. Lots of people like it. Ah. Uh. We got an email from uh, Ian Frazier, uh, Chief Mooseroo Wrangler for IPMS Hamilton. Uh oh. In Ontario. 
What's uh, the news? The news is that uh, they were thinking it would be a good idea to dump a 1960s Airfix kit on us and only, oh. only build it with a kitchen knife, paintbrush, and tube glue. Oh, God, no. But uh, they they had uh, wisdom prevailed, and uh, they settled on this year's challenge, and now it's all been wrapped up, packed up, and it's on the way. So apparently... I'm going to get a package soon and then we'll know. Then we'll know what's up with Oh, they um, didn't te- they didn't tell you what it is. They did not tell me what it is. Oh god. You guys you guys are <laughs> diabolical. I, that's exactly what I was thinking, man. That is cold as ice. Oh man. Well, they are Canadian. They know a lot about yeah, ice. That's true. That's true. But usually Canadians are polite and nice. That's that's kind of a cold thing to do. Well, we'll report when Mike gets the package. Uh, I answered this one via direct email. This is James Mears, and uh, he didn't give me a, a location. And Jim has a couple of points. One, well, he gave us a re- nice review, so we appreciate that on Instagram. Yay. Uh, what was the name of the paintbrush company you all mentioned on one of the podcasts? Would you like to take that? Uh, that would be Zim Brushes. Z-E-M. Zim Brushes. And uh, it's a it's a... A great website. He's a great seller, and he gets some pretty sizable discounts if you start ordering a whole lot of stuff. And his prices are such that you can get a just a ton of paintbrushes for not so much money. Yeah. In fact, I still need to make another order. I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a bad pay, patron of paintbrushes. That's not the right word. I'm a, I'm a bad a steward of paintbrushes. That'd yes. be a better better way to say it. You you abuse your brushes. You I, I abuse my brushes. Well. No, I I, <laughs> I use them and I take care of them poorly. Gotcha. Well, when you do that, let me know. Okay, I will let you know. So, Jim, uh, Zim Brushes, I sent you an email link. Uh, I highly recommend it, and so does Dave. Yes. So does anybody else we've recommended them to, for that matter. Yeah. Uh, and he'd also like a podcast in the future about model shipbuilding. Ooh, we're going to have to find somebody and bring somebody on, because I've built exactly... Well, if you don't count submarines, I've built exactly one ship in my life, and that was 700 scale. All right. Well, up next is Derek Post from Des Moines, Iowa, and I think this was really directed at you. Uh-oh. What's the most that should be paid for a decal set? Oh, God. That's a... Oh, that question hurts. Um, well, let me, I, let, me, let me go a little further for you. Okay. He recently bid on a 48 scale set from two bobs for uh, some F-15 uh, tiger meat decals. And he's planning on bidding up to $35 because he had been looking for this set for about a year. Yeah. Long story short, it went for 120 and the seller was just as shocked as he was. Oh, my God. <laughs> so here's what he did. And, and yeah. a shout out to fellow modelers. He found three people on Scalemates that had that desired set. So off went the emails about buying it from him and all three responded and he f- the first gentleman to respond back was in Germany and they agreed on a reasonable price and 3 weeks later he's logging the decal sheet into his stash Th- this one's near and dear to my heart cuz I am hi my name's David and I'm a decal holic you're all supposed to say hi David I love decal sheets um I have you have to start framing them yeah, I, really, I have no lie over 500 sheets. And when you consider that each sheet, uh, most sheets that you buy have multiple aircraft on a sheet, I have no need for any more decals, yet I continue to buy them. 
with regularity. It's just, it's something about the colors, the illustrations, the, you know, it just, uh, I, 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 I am putty. And so what, as far as what I've never paid 120, um, <laughs> I hope not, not for one single sheet, but I did. Okay. One of my great, great loves and interests is, uh, the Ploesti raid on August 1st, 1943, Operation Tidal Wave. And over the years, I've collected a few decal sheets that had a Tidal Wave aircraft on it. Well, a few years ago, uh, a guy named Dave Klaus, who runs pinup decals, and one of his areas of interest is the Operation Tidal Wave, he did, I think, four or five decal sheets with Ploesti Raiders on them. I mean, just nothing but Ploesti Raiders. So that if you bought all five decal sheets, you could do 30, at least 30 different aircraft. And these sheets were $20 plus a piece. And I bought them all. <laughs> That's a lot of... <laughs> It's a lot of B-24s you got to build, Dave. Yeah, I know. And I'm I'm kind of trying to figure out exactly how I'm going to display. Because I think I counted that with uh, the other decal sheets I've acquired that didn't duplicate anything that he did. I think I can probably do about 38 of the Ploesti Raiders. And so now where I'm going to manage to put 38 Hasegawa B-24s, I'm not 100% sure. I don't either, much less yeah. find the time to build that many. Exactly. Up next is Bob Bear from Charlotte, North Carolina. We hadn't heard from him in a while, but uh, thanks again, Bob. Uh, he, he says he liked our coverage on Wonderfest, and he, he thinks he may try to make the trip next year. That'd be good. Highly recommended. If you like sci-fi. And and Bob, I hope you've listened to the coverage on uh, Skill Model Podcast. They kind of had a different angle because that's kind of more their thing, the guys on the show who actually went to that show, than Dave and I. And I think uh, between the two shows, you had a pretty good uh, pretty good coverage of, of that show. And, you know, we had a great time. Yeah, we did. Absolutely. And if, if you have, if, if you have an interest in, in sci-fi fantasy, any of that stuff, Wonderfest is the show to go to. It's pretty much. Yeah. It is the show. Capital T H E. Yeah. Uh, he thinks he would like, uh, well, he wants our opinion on brush painting. He doesn't think he's heard that on any of the podcasts really talk about it. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but it may be true. Uh, what kind of brushes are good for different kinds of paint? How do we clean our brushes and how do we keep them looking sharp? Because uh, <laughs> his brush hairs look like Bill the Cat after just a couple of uses. <laughs> now, he, he's going to be in Vegas and uh, we'll get to meet Bob and uh, quite a few of these people who ride in this 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 week. Actually. Yes. We're going to have to keep a list. We need a sign-in list on our table, well, man. What do we want to do? We talk about brush painting a little bit? Yeah. Um, let me, let me say this, you know, I still brush paint dec uh, details on aircraft, you know, uh, cockpit, uh, cockpit detail, stuff like that. Small parts, maybe in undercarriage or landing lights, stuff like that. Um, there are people on 72nd scale, uh, uh, aircraft forum 
who brush paint their entire models and are so good at it that you would swear they are airbrushed. That's a skill I do not have. I, I just don't. The The airbrush works better for me. There was a little bit of a learning curve when I first started airbrushing, as I mentioned in the previous episode. But for me, airbrushing works better. Uh, but there are guys who, who have mastered the art of brush painting entire models. And there are some real amazing guys out there. The other thing I could I would say is that as far as taking care of your brushes go, once you're done using the brush, cleaning it is important and not only cleaning it but there's there's uh, the stuff that artists use called B&J the Masters brush cleaner and preserver. And it's basically like a specialized soap that once you've cleaned the, whatever paint you're using out of the brush, you rub the brush on this stuff, which is like almost a cake of soap, uh, wetted with a little water, and it cleans the uh, ex- any excess uh, material in the in the brush fibers out and preserves and keeps helps keep the point to the brush. And if you use something like this, which I have only occasionally used uh, because I'm, like Mike, a bad steward of my brushes, it, it will preserve them and will help you keep using them longer. And the other thing that I would recommend as far as brush painting goes, throw brushes away when they're no longer useful or repurpose them for other purposes. Modelers as a whole tend to, I think, overuse their supplies. You'll see a guy sanding with a piece of sandpaper that all the grit has been rubbed off on or using an exacto blade that was long ago dull or using a brush that looks kind of like Bill the Cat where the no no two no two fibers go in the same direction. You know, those things are all relatively cheap and you are best off throwing them away when they have become less than less effective than they were at first and bringing in new material, be it new sandpaper, sanding sticks, exacto blades or brushes, simply because a new fresh item will save you time. And time is the one thing you can't buy more of. That's true. Trying to think what I can add here. We could do a whole episode on this and maybe we will revisit this later. Um, Yes. As far as what kind of brushes are good for different kinds of paint, maybe I should, but I've never cut it that close. I typically use sable brushes or artificial sable brushes. Yeah. For everything. Yeah. Now, if you go to the Zem website, they will actually tell you these brushes are better for acrylics and these are better for oils. And they actually actually delineate it that way, but I've never really paid attention to that. Now, do they have any kind of uh, point and or any cleaners or brush? You know, I don't. I don't know if Zem makes their own. Uh, just pretty much everybody I know uses this B and J, the Masters brush cleaner and preserver. But I'm sure other companies make the same thing. All I'm right. sure both. I'm sure both Mig and AK will have it out within the the next two weeks. 
now we've said something about it. Yes, exactly. Well, Bob, it's a good suggestion about an episode. Maybe we'll consider yes. that. And I think that's a great idea. Mark that down. See what else we can get into with that. Uh, and finally, just under the wire, Mr. Kyle McCool from uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Wait a minute. You're telling me in one episode we have a chill and a McCool? What <laughs> would appear that way. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm jealous. You all got great names out there. Well, he's just come back into the hobby and uh, he's built a few models as a kid. But uh, again, in spring of 2020, probably because we know, yeah, we spend yeah. a lot of time at home. Uh, and he's just uh, working his way through some models. He's built about 10 now and he's getting a little bit better, at least by his opinion, than the last. <laughs> yeah. Lots of 72nd scale airplanes, a few 48 scale, a few 35th Mm -hmm. scale helicopters and uh, modern army vehicles. He's got a ship in there. All right. Got a destroyer in one 350th scale. He says he's got his favorite scale, but it's not, it's not yours. Oh, you're breaking my heart, man. (laughs) He just wants to say he thinks the hobby is alive and well, and he's so glad to have rediscovered it. So. You know, uh, listen, uh, we, when you, you have to look for silver linings and everything. And certainly COVID was a disaster in so many ways. But if you've got to look for a silver lining, a silver lining is so many people seem to have rediscovered the hobby. And, you know, that's great. If it got people through all of this crap. That's fantastic, and hopefully they'll keep at it. It's alive and kicking, man. Yep, yep, it is indeed. Simple minds, look it up. (laughs) Well, it's that time in the podcast, folks. Uh, If you've enjoyed what you're listening to, uh, please, when you're done listening, please go rate the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening, be it uh, iTunes, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever. Uh, We'd appreciate you rating us, giving us five stars if you can see your way clear to do that, because that helps the algorithm drive our visibility up. Also, please, if you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. Tell somebody you know, fellow modeler who's not listening. Show them how to access podcasts on their phone and uh, have them subscribe to our podcast. Word of mouth and recommendations from a fellow modeler are the single biggest way that we get new listeners. So if you do that, we'd appreciate it. And finally, Mike, I'd like to say, man, this Weller is good. (laughs) Well, you beat me to it. While you're out rating the podcast, please tune into our fellow podcasts. We've got a little something different now. For more podcast listening, please visit our new web webpage consortium at modelpodcast.com there you can find links to all our all the podcasts are in the space right now and uh hopefully we're all going to participate and get along and uh keep this thing bringing good good content to everybody uh, you can find links to all the participating podcasts in the pod space at modelpodcast.com but i do want to single out on the bench this episode uh dave i got my uh i got my vegemite resupply Breakfast is yep. good. Breakfast is yummy. Uh, look forward to some of that tomorrow, actually. Well, good. That's fantastic, man. In addition to our podcast friends, please check out our blog and YouTube folks out there who we like to follow. First, we got Model Airplane Maker for Mr. Chris Wallace. Uh, he's got a blog and a YouTube channel, a very good YouTube channel and a very good blog. Uh, 
Yes, Chris, please do another uh, YouTube. That's right. We had a fun time with him uh, and our uh, Canadian friends on uh, on Zoom the other night. Yes, we did. Uh, we also got Jeff Groves, Inch High Guy, and his 70-second scale blog. So if you're into 70-second <laughs> scale, you got to get over there. Got to check yep. it out. Uh, scale Canadian TV with Mr. Jim Bates, YouTube and blog. Yeah. Now that the heat's subsided, he can actually kick out some more content. Yeah, that's right. Maybe his uh, fellow residents quit unplugging the internet. <laughs> we hope. That sucks. And finally, our interview from last month, Stephen Lee with Sprue Pie with Fretz. Uh, keep it coming, Steve. We all like it. Yes, absolutely. Histo- this guy came out of nowhere as far as he dropped in, decided to start blogging, and just tore it up from day one. So I highly recommend going to his blog daily to see what he's been doing. Uh, finally, if you're not a member of IPMS USA or IPMS Canada or your local IPMS or your national IPMS chapter in whatever country you're listening to us in, please consider going out there joining. Uh, there's nothing more gratifying to me when listeners email us and tell us they've joined IPMS USA or IPMS Canada or IPMS whatever. You will get a lot out of it. And these organizations do a lot behind the scenes to promote the hobby and to organize the hobby. The IPMS National Contest coming up in Las Vegas would not be possible were it not for the national organization. So I urge you, please go ahead and join. Well, Dave, we probably ought to take a word from our sponsor right now with John Miller at Model Paint Solutions. Absolutely. Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder steam back airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. Well, Dave, it's countdown to Vegas. How long, Mike? Dave, at the time of this recording, it is a mere 38 days from now, Holy. from the time of this recording to the IPMS National Convention in blistering Las Vegas, Nevada, because I checked the weather today. <laughs> but it's a dry heat. Yeah, it's a dry heat. Trust me, that doesn't make a deal of beans difference. <laughs> so, so, is, so is the inside of an oven, but I wouldn't live there either. Well, you know, we're going to have to kick up the, uh, the pre-registration game and, and keep encouraging people to pre-register. Uh, one thing I want to talk about is that uh, we had a listener mail come in and what can people expect about, you know, when they pre-register, what, what are they going to get and, and how's that going to go forward on, on the, on the show, on the show day on the other end versus, versus maybe uh, just paying general admission. Well, here, here's what happens. If you're going to buy a general admission ticket, I don't think you can buy those early. I'm not sure, but I don't think you can buy those early. You have to buy those day of show involves in getting in line. Most, most conventions in the past have sold daily tickets, you know, one day tickets. They sometimes sell multi-day tickets for a higher price. Sometimes you might want to do the math because if you are going to be there four day, all four days, uh, you'll find that 
pre-register, even if you're not entering models, pre-registration and buying daily admission tickets, which just allow you access to the model room and the vendor room, but don't allow you um, to enter a model. The, the price isn't that different. Uh, I highly recommend that even if you're not going to enter a model, you still pre-register and pay the pre-registration price because among other things, it gets you a decal sheet, a pin, some other swag. The other advantage of pre-registering is that when you walk into the convention, you don't have to stand in line to buy your daily admission ticket. If you have pre-registered for the contest, you walk in, you walk into an area or a room, every convention's a little different, where they have all of these bags organized alphabetically. And it's kind of like voting or the DMV. You get in a line with your the first letter, your last name. You get there, the person on the other side asks you your name. He goes and looks at the bags, grabs the one with your name on it, hands it to you. You're done. And that is so much quicker than standing in line for a general admission ticket or standing in line for a, a registration day of show. It allows you to enter a model if you or more than one model if you want to enter models. But even if you don't, you get all the swag. There's a decal sheet. There's a pin. There's uh uh, you know, the the schedule, there's usually some swag from manufacturers. I highly re- recommend, even if you're not going to enter a model, going ahead and pre-registering because the cost is not usually that much different if you're going to attend all four days of the contest. Now, if you're only coming in and out for a day and you're not going to enter a model, you stand in line and you get your general admission ticket because it's cheaper, and I understand that. But if you're going to be there multiple days of the contest, go ahead, pre-register. It will be it will be a much more happy experience. And again, let me emphasize the most single most important thing: if you go to an IPMS national convention, wear comfortable shoes because you are going to do a lot of walking. And bring, bring small bills. Yeah, well, bring small bills too, yeah. But wear comfortable shoes because, man, you're going to do a lot of walking and standing, sometimes on hard concrete, sometimes on carpet. But still, I don't think I've ever – I've been to 20-some-odd conventions now. I don't think I've ever left a convention where my legs didn't hurt. Well, that's the mark of a successful show. That is indeed you listen, the worst the worst IPMS convention that I've ever been to was still the best time I had that year. I'm telling you. Well, I think uh what I would add would be to uh I actually think they are selling the uh the general admissions online. Online, are they? Okay. Yeah. So if if anything we've said, if you've got one of those and what we said has convinced you maybe if you're gonna be there for the entire duration or most of the duration to maybe consider registering um i would start reaching out now see if they'll convert that for you with the you know you'll, yes. have, you'll have an uplift a little bit but uh surely surely they would credit you but uh, i don't know if they will or not but uh i, I, I would i would, they would. I, I would start now yeah yeah this is where it gets hairy okay 
uh, an IPMS national convention is a two plus year process for the guys putting the convention on. It's really three years because there's a year where you plan and bid, and then there's two years before the contest. And there's a lot of dead time in the first year, year and a half, where you've made your arrangements and everything's locked in and you're just waiting to go. The last 30 days before a national convention is when things really start hopping for the guys who are putting it on. So I don't, I don't envy Bob and, and, and Joe and those guys. Um, this is the time where it really gets busy for them. And remember, these guys are all volunteers. Nobody's getting paid for doing this. This is a labor of love. And for the guys who put on a national convention for the host chapters, they are really doing us all a very big favor. And we need to be appreciative and understanding if there are any little hiccups along the way. These are all volunteers doing their best. And finally, I'm going to drop a teaser here. We have okay. A, we have an episode in the works that's going to hopefully drop uh, the week just prior to the Nationals. And if all goes according to plan, we will hear again from uh, Bob Lomasaro, the uh, convention chairman. <laughs> that is, if he's sane. If he's sane. We will also hear a little bit from Dr. Strangebrush about his upcoming uh seminar at the IPMS Nationals, and uh, we'll also launch a little something special with him during this episode. And we're going to be talking to the guys from the Plastic Posse podcast, because they're all going to be coming down and out from uh, their various locations to the IPMS Nationals, and some of those guys are first-timers. In fact, most of them are. Oh, God. Could be a good conversation. There is nothing like your first national convention. My first was in 1985 in Indy, and I still remember everything about it, just because it is so different an experience from anything you've experienced before. Your first one is magical. So I'm looking forward to all of that. Uh, Hopefully, uh, Bob will be sane at that point. Um, I have my doubts. I know the... I know the stress that these guys are under. He's he's excited though. I can't wait. Well, yeah, and he should be cuz I think that because of the pandemic. Oh yeah. He he may end up setting records that nobody expected a West Coast national to set. Well, let's hope so. Yes, absolutely. And if I haven't mentioned it before, This Weller is really darn good. Yeah, I'm enjoying this. Well, that's it for Countdown to Vegas. All right, Mike, uh, have you been building? Well, I know the answer to that because I follow our Facebook page and you text me occasionally. It looks like you've been modeling a little bit. I've been modeling quite a bit. Now, do tell. Not this past weekend, unfortunately, but... uh, uh, you know, I, I've, I really want to get this Zist 2 done. I really want to get it done and start something else. I'm, I'm trying not to rush it. You know where, I hear you. You know where that ends up. Oh, yeah. So I've finished up all the retaining walls for the revetment for the, for the base. 
and the palette. All the wood wood painting is done. I kind of backed off my original idea. That is that is a place I compromised because that was just not going to close like I wanted it to in a timely manner. Uh, we'll revisit that later. And I've started at adding the texture to the uh, the styrofoam base that I've had cut for a, quite a long time, actually. And what were you using as your texturing material? Well, it's a Vallejo Earth Texture. It's a it's an acrylic product. It's got like pumice in it to make it yeah bumpy and rough and textured. Uh, yeah. Well, the first thing I did it was I've got some uh, Grumbacher, a big a big bottle of uh, acrylic paint. And I painted the whole thing like in raw umber just to cover up the foam and cover up all the white. And then I came back with this this Earth Texture and daubed it on and got got all the the ground level surface is covered again, but it's all going to get painted again. I really don't like the color of this stuff. I like the texture and the ease of use. I just don't like the color. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's a good color right out of the bottle. It's a good base, but it's it's not a finished color by any means. Yeah. Well, and you, you with grounds, ground is not just one color. So no matter what, you're going to have to paint any ground material that you apply just to get variations in color. Well, that may be it. I mean, this stuff dries a a, a very uniform color, so yeah. it, it doesn't look natural, right? It the texture looks natural. I got it right here in front of me now. Yeah, I think this is going to look good. Have you been working on anything else? Uh, unfortunately, not. I've just been working on this. I got uh, I still got to flat finish the uh, all the wooden wooden planks and things, but they are all painted, and I've got all the ammo boxes together. I've just got to paint Yay. them now. I got to paint them. And decal them? Uh, uh, a couple of them, yes. Actually, all of them have a decal on them because the, the closed ones have a decal on the lid on the outside and the open ones have a decal on the lid on the inside. <laughs> so it didn't, didn't escape that. But uh, hopefully hopefully in a week or so, I'll be starting to put this base together. Well, good. Get, get, well, every, good. get everything going. I'm real pleased with the wood parts. I think they turned out pretty good. You know, uh, I was going to mention there are out there on the YouTube, on the YouTubes, as the as the kids say, there are a bunch of great tutorials uh, on doing wood and wood grain and weathered wood, AK and and MIG ammo and a whole bunch of other folks. I think. Last Cavalry might even have one to to simulate different types of wood and distressed wood. That's one area where I think YouTube can really help somebody if they're trying to simulate uh, w- some sort of wood product. Well, for me, that's all I've gotten done. Uh, I've made a lot of progress. It's just all, only on one of my only on one project. So hopefully, you can uh, redeem this segment and uh, <laughs> let us know what you've been doing. Well, I have made progress on two out of three projects. It's better than uh, me. The M30 is still where it is. I got the AK white paint. I can, I'm ready to start chipping, but I haven't brought myself to do it yet. There's no reason other than I'm a complete coward, uh, but I'll get to it. I'll suck it up and say, all right, I'm going to do it. Uh, the mosquito that in theory I have to have built in 37 days or less is coming along. I've gotten the bottom color applied and, and distressed and, and, and varied. Uh, I've gotten the first top coat applied and distressed, uh, and varied. And now I'm going to 
put the put a thin coat of the original base color over it. So the mosquito's moving along, and there is at least some possibility that it will be done for the Nationals. In addition, I've been working on the TU-128. Uh, I have a set, I bought an aftermarket set of wheels by Armory for the TU-128. I've painted them, or at least started painting them. Uh, and I'll tell you, I'm not overly impressed with these items. Uh, they're, <laughs> they're better than the kit parts, but they're not much better than the kit parts. And I think if I were doing it again, I would just go ahead and use the kit parts. So that's a little disappointing. But the TU-128 is moving forward. And uh, hopefully, when I see all of you all out at the Nationals, I will have the completed Mosquito out there, along with the ones from the the group Mosquito Bill, the, the other modelers participating in that. And uh, hopefully, we'll have them all out there. We got 38 days. I am not good modeling under pressure, man, especially so. with everything else going on. Man, work is just killing me. <laughs> Don't he start taking bets now? Yeah, uh, let's put it this way. If I were you, I'd bet against. Just I've got to be honest. Uh, I mean, I'm going to try, and Lord knows I want to. But given my track record and how slowly I model, you know that you should probably bet against me. Well, it's already already one foot in the grave because the group build. Exactly. Exactly. Anything else? That's it. That's where my bench stands right now. All right. Well, if you don't have anything else, uh, stock faves and yawns for a little bit. All right. There's been a, a fair number of things announced recently. I'm, I'm sure something's got you excited. What, what might oh, it, abs- what, absolutely. What might it be? Well, the first one is Dora Wings has announced a 72nd scale P43 Lancer. And if you don't know what the P43 Lancer is, I do not blame you at all. The Republic P-43 Lancer was the aircraft between uh, the Seversky P-35 that was a uh, pre-World War II radial engine fighter. There were some of them in the Philippines at the beginning of World War II. And then the P-47, which ended up being the, you know, one of the, one of the two U.S. fighter uh, aircraft that were predominant in the war. The P-43 was kind of the the interim step before the P-47. There weren't a ton of them build, uh, built. A lot of them you, uh, went to China, and the Chinese used them. We've had some short-run kits of them and definitely had resin and injection, but Dora Wings is doing a full-on injection 72nd scale P-43 Lancer. Since the Republic of China is one of my areas of interest, I look forward to this because it will allow us to build a using a modern kit, a P-43, which, you know, You've got to you've got to build and put next to your P forty seven on your shelf. How about you? Well, mine goes out of genre for my my biggest fave of the, of the last two two weeks. Uh oh, uh oh. You see the zeppelins that Tacom has announced? Yes, I have, and in fact, uh, our friend Stephen Lee also commented on these. Yeah, I'm gonna be getting me one of those. 
I don't, I don't know. I can't believe I'm saying that, but uh, that's that's just that's cool. I agree. And the thing is, as I pointed out to you when we were talking, uh, the thing is, they're one three fifty a scale, and you've got to build a one three fifty scale World War One German dreadnought because the high seas fleet used zeppelins as scouting aircraft for uh, the fleet. When they when they went out on on actions such as the Battle of Jutland, so the 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 Zeppelin will lead you directly into ship one three fifty scale ship modeling, and that'll make David Goldfinch happy. <laughs> well, there's two of these, and they're different models, and one's a little longer. I'll probably get the bigger one. I mean, why not? Of course, bigger is better. Bigger is better. As, as, never mind. And, 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 <laughs> <laughs> At one three fifty, they're not terrible. No, they're going to be decent size. They'll be about the size of a three fifty scale battleship. So, what else you got? Well, um, this one's kind of personal to me. Pavla is reissuing their Fock Angelus FA three thirty, and now we're going to ask Mike if he knows what a Fock Angelus FA three thirty is. No, I don't. Uh, you, there's no reason you should know. The Fock Angeles FA-330 looks like a cross between a glider and a helicopter. And what it is is actually a towed kite with a three-bladed helicopter-type propeller overhead. And what this thing was, it was, you, it was disassembled, stored in a U-boat, then the U-boat, when it's out in the Atlantic, would surface, assemble the Fock Angelus, and tow it as a kite behind the U-boat or above the U-boat. And somebody would be sitting in it, and basically they were using it as an ability to look over the horizon for Allied shipping. And I have had for the longest time the idea of doing a diorama of a 72nd scale U-boat towing one of these things. And, you know, it's sticking, it's connected by a, a cord to the, to the uh, submarine and have it being towed and suspended over the U-boat. And yeah, I know the chances of me actually accomplishing that are zero, but the Fock Angelus by Pavla has been unavailable for years, and I've looked for them and never found one, and apparently they are reissuing it. Isn't there one of these in the Smithsonian? I believe there is one at Udvar Hazy. Yes. At the Air and, Space, Air and Space Museum, the Udvar Hazy out at uh, Dulles Airport. Fuck Oculus. Yes. Fuck Oculus. I can't pronounce <laughs> that shit. There's no, there's no N in it. Yes. You're, you are correct. I'm sorry. My German pronunciation is less than perfect. So, so what's next for you? Well, I don't know if it's a fave or a yawn. It's just an observation. Just is Asia Asian market shell game. 
Well, I don't know if you saw the YouTube blow up between the, you know, the Tycom and the Ryefield and you you mean bo- Facebook? Border, yeah, Facebook, sorry. That that was that was kind of comical. Oh, that was rarely do you see industry squabbles break out into public like that. Well, <laughs> I won't say much more about that, but uh, that was that was entertainment gold actually. <laughs> yes. It certainly was. Rarely, rarely do uh, corporations drop F-bombs on Facebook. And uh, disparagement. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, Well, back back to point. Um, What I mean by shell game is, uh, you know, there's there's a company that came to light here in the last year called uh, Suyata. And they came out with these, like, Tamiya homage kind of. I don't know what they were. They were they were like mannequin esque kind of figures, in, yes. t- in old Tamiya style boxes, and they came out with it actually came out the Kettenkrad, kind of go with them, and it was it's really kind of weird. But then they announced a Panther A with the uh, the overhead crane and the uh, full interior kit, mm-hmm. and then they announced if you were paying attention to Tiger One. Now that Tiger One is no longer a Suyata release; it's a U Star release. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> who is U Star? <laughs> well, who is Suyata? Nine right. months ago, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't get it. But you know, it's it's 48 scale armor. Um, I have my opinions about that. There's a market for it. Oh yes, Tamiya has shown clearly that there was. It's not as big as 35th scale, but there's a market no. for it. Uh, and you know, I just, it's more of a curiosity is, is what's going on with these two companies that the one, one, one made an announcement. Now, now somebody else is coming out with it. Yeah. And how's that play into the, the whole, you know, the whole squabble between the other three in the 35th scale market, you know, somebody's doing two X is doing tooling for Y or Z is going to sell Y's kit under this label. And it's, it, <laughs> Boy, that's an interesting place. Yes. China. Well, you've been to China a few times, and so have I. It is very, very different and unusual. And and especially when many of these companies have um, state interests in them. Yes. So sometimes they cooperate, sometimes they're forced to cooperate, sometimes they compete, uh, sometimes a company is in favor because of its political connections. It just it's it's I don't want to say so different because let's face it, you here in the United States, there's at least some of that that goes on. But the extent to which it goes on in China is just wild. Anything else? One last one, and it's a it's a fave, not a yawn. A res kit, who is a manufacturer of resin accessories, has announced a fair number of Russian Soviet slash Russian air-to-air and air-to-ground ordnance, including freefall bombs, missiles, and rocket launcher pods. And 
this stuff is the res kit. If you've never seen it, it's really good stuff. And the aftermarket or the, the Russian and Soviet uh, air to air and particularly air to ground ordinance is an area that definitely needs the assistance of someone like res kit. Cause a lot of stuff that ordinance that comes in the actual kits themselves are not particularly good. So I am happy to see ResKit going further and further into the uh, the Soviet aftermarket uh, ordnance industry. You got a final one? Well, no, I don't have a final one. I'll just close okay. by saying, I, I guess apparently that uh, sheep are, are infinitely more interesting than pigeons. Uh, I was going to mention sheep. I really was. Um, that was actually, know, I don't know. I think that was a little more useful. I, I agree. Sheep is better than pigeons. There's no question. And I will tell you, I really like a lot of what mini art is doing where mini art, in addition to their kits, which I understand are fairly nice kits. All of this accessory stuff they're doing it from workshop tools to trash cans to to machine tools is a boon to the dioramacist. If you're if you like dioramas, mini art should mini art reminds me of what VLS was in the eighties and nineties. Well, that's a good per- point. That's a good point. I would say that. Uh- what I was thinking was that it's what many artists doing in injection molded plastic is, is the answer to all those emails that were written into all the modeling magazines in the eighties about why is there no tank engines and park gates and window sets and gutters and ammo yes. boxes and 35th scale in plastic. Yep. So absolutely. We, we finally, but, we finally arrived. And here is the only downside I see. And you, you, I know you remember this era when VLS hit in the late 80s, early 90s. I love dioramas. I don't do dioramas. I love dioramas. A good diorama tells a story. A good diorama has a lot of subtlety to it that you you can stare at for five minutes and see new things every time. And before VLS really good dioramas, all of the accessories were scratch built and you never saw the same thing twice. And then when VLS came along, you ended up with dioramas that looked like somebody vomited the VLS catalog onto a base where you saw the same Buddhist statue, the same this or that, the same building, the same whatever, in every diorama, and it kind of took the originality away. I, the one thing I worry about with all of this stuff mini art is doing is that same thing happening that every diorama you see will have mini art trash cans, mini art sheep, and mini art pigeons on the diorama, and it loses some originality when at least some of the diorama isn't scratch built. But then again, on the other hand, 
I see the need for all of these things and I'm happy they're available for people because there are a lot of modelers who will build mini art trash cans that would never scratch build trash cans of their own. I think also that their line is getting so diverse that you end up in a situation where there's an infinite way to put this stuff together. Yes, absolutely. I do think that is a possibility that the while while you may h- end up seeing them the mix and match possibilities are really going to provide you with a lot of really interesting dioramas even if you see the same sheep in diorama after diorama and in, in that regard you may not recognize it as many are right off the bat right yes agreed as opposed to the VLS stuff which was yep. of limited volume you know limited product scope there was just not that much of it i can't tell you how many times i saw that buddhist statue in the v in vietnam dioramas in the 80s and 90s do you know the one i know the one all right well that's faves and yawns now it's time for our special segment and we're gonna have a little talk with the panzermeister yes uh after Gosh, a long time of trying to coordinate uh, with uh, his uh, university schedule and all that. It all finally worked itself out. And uh, Mr. Evan McCallum, a.k.a. Panzermeister36, got to have a conversation with us, and we really appreciated it. So uh, let's have a listen to that. Well, listeners, we have a guest tonight from uh, Ottawa, Canada. It's Mr. Evan McCallum. Evan, how are you doing tonight? Very well. How about yourself? I'm great. Now, most of our listeners will know you possibly by your your YouTube handle, Panzermeister36. We'll talk a little bit about your videos and that stuff as well. But uh, the reason I want to have you on tonight, or I've been trying to get you on for a while. We just haven't been able to, to get it together because of your, your schedule and our schedule. We have a lot of similarities in our, our modeling journey, and uh, I just thought that might be an interesting discussion. Can you give us a little bit of your, uh, your, your you're not that old by comparison to us. Dave and I, we're kind of Crush the old guys, but uh, hey, what about you? What about you, Evan? How old are you? I am 23 years old. Uh, I just graduated from my aerospace engineering degree at Carlson University here. I know it's aerospace engineering. We're going to talk about that later, I'm sure, how I do <laughs> tanks instead of airplanes. Um, yep, so I just graduated from university, just got my apartment here. Uh, recently, I've been setting up my workbench because that's the most important thing when you get a new space at the workbench. That's right. Yep. Absolutely. So been a little bit busy, no videos lately, but hope to get back into that soon. Yeah. When when did you actually start modeling? I started modeling probably when I was, well, honestly, I first got into modeling through model railroading when I was probably like seven, eight, eight years old with, you know, a basic HO scale, like loop around the Christmas tree kind of thing. I always loved like Thomas Tank Engine when I was a little kid. So that was like the next step. Uh, set up a little loop in the basement kind of thing on a table. And of course, with that, you end up building like structures and stuff like that, basic kits. Uh, you play around with the red testers, tube glue and all that fun stuff. <laughs> you know, you're just popping parts off the sprues and everything. And then I also, oh, that probably went on for until I was maybe like 12, 13, 14 years old or so. And then I also was developing an interest in history. I liked watching history documentaries and there was like a show at the time that I like to watch, which was Greatest Tank Battles on the History Channel, which I found was always very entertaining. And then I just kind of wanted to build a, um, a model kit 
And I was very fascinated by the aesthetics of the Stormgeschütz, the Stug 3. So I just went to the local hobby shop and I picked up a Dragon Smart Kit Stug 3 as my first. It's <laughs> my first kit. And, you know, those things have like, oh, yeah. like 400 parts or so. And even though that kit was quite complicated, I had a fun time building and painting it and just kind of went from there. I kind of moved more into more and more into the model tank aspect of things over the years. Uh, I started my YouTube channel a couple years after I got into model tanks, so I was still pretty new at the time. And then I've lately been kind of getting more and more back into the motor routing aspect of that because I do like the scenery aspects of it and the weathering aspects of it. But I am still definitely mostly a tank guy. Well, that, that's interesting for me because I I got into not not quite the same, but I was into model railroading early on. I was also doing a lot of aircraft, 48 scale monogram kits and, and the like. And I, I was doing model railroading, very simplistic though, yeah. you know, loops on plywood, not a whole lot of really good scenery, if much at all. Was it the documentaries that flipped you over or did you, do you get, see any of the modeling publications? What, what, uh, what, uh, for me, the trigger was, uh, on a family vacation, I picked up a copy of the old uh, American publication, military modeler. And I kind of, Hey, that's kind of cool. That's a, kind of a new twist on modeling. And I, I think the, those models and dioramas look great. And I think I'd like to do that. And I kind of went from there. Um, any, any similarities there? I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I know that I was reading a lot of model rotor magazine at the time when I was kind of transitioning over. And I was very quick to pick up fine scale modeler when I was first getting into it. But I believe that that was after I built like my first kit or so. I am pretty sure it was like the books and the, the history channel, you know, back when the history channel was actually history stuff, of course, (laughs) and not ancient aliens and (laughs) all the other, all the other fun stuff. Yeah. I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens. (laughs) You mentioned the Sturmgeschütz, which is also a favorite of mine. I've got a few I've built. I wouldn't say several, but I've built a few. I got a bunch in the stash, but, uh, uh, for me, it was an aesthetic thing as well. And can you tell us more about that? What, what makes that one so interesting to you and why it's such a uh, re- reoccurring theme on, on your uh, your YouTube channel? I just, well, I first got into it purely because I thought it was a very interesting looking vehicle. And I mean, I wasn't that deep into the knowledge then. So I was quite fascinated by the fact that it was, it was a very common tank, but it didn't have the common tank look to it because, you know, it's actually a tank destroyer slash assault gun style where it doesn't have an actual turret. And I just, I liked the look of the long gun late Stoke 3 with the side skirts. It was, it was, it looked cool on whichever episode of Greatest Tank Battles I first saw it on. I was like, that's a cool tank. And then I, I got the, basically the kit of that variant, like a 1943 Stoke 3 with the side skirts and the cast mantle and everything. I got, that was the first armor kit that I built. Um, but now uh, that's still stuck with me, but now that I've read more and more into it, I even find it to be more fascinating because of course it's the most produced German armored vehicle, armored fighting vehicle, basically of the war apart from half tracks and so on, I think, but sure. It beats out all the other panzers and everything. And because of that, it's in like every theater. They made them from 1937 to 1945. Every single paint scheme, every single theater, you know, you can, you can do it. You can do it anywhere. I just find that there's always an interesting reference photo available of it because it's just so common that it was everywhere. So there's always interesting stuff for me to do about it. 
And as I get even deeper and deeper, I'm, now I'm in like the factory features and all this stuff for the different factories and different things they did at different times and all the different Zimmert patterns. It's quite complicated, but I just find it to be interesting to read about that stuff and think about how I could incorporate that on um, different models. So I got to ask, do you have the uh, the Mueller Zimmerman two volume set on Sturmgeschütz? Yes, I have both of those. <laughs> In- indispensable, I imagine. Absolutely. They're, uh, I probably look at them at least once a week. <laughs> I imagine you do. Um and you also have some interest in T-34s was another favorite of mine. Uh, typically, my, my interests are, are almost entirely Eastern Front related. I just, I just think the, the, you know, here we are right near the, uh, what is the 80th anniversary of Barbarossa Yeah. Uh, this week and at the time of this recording. And uh, it's just always been fascinating for me because I guess when I was grade school and even even college in history, that that theater of the war didn't ever get a whole lot of attention, at least not in the United States. I don't know how it was in Canada. You didn't get a whole lot of depth into that subject. And as I learned the scope of it on my own later, it just, all that just took took on great interest for me. And that's kind of what drove my interest in that. Uh, what steers you toward the, the T-34? Uh, honestly, same kind of thing to start with. I found it to be a very aesthetically pleasing vehicle to look at. You know, it just looks really cool. And you, when, when I look at one, I think of how I can paint and weather in an interesting way. I find I most like the look of the early T-34s with the early turret, the not the hexagonal one and not the 85 millimeter, but like the standard big hatch early one Yes, with either the, the really short earlier gun, like the L11 or the later one. I just, I think it has the same kind of look as this took three. It's nice and kind of low and wide, almost like streamlined. It's just a really cool vehicle. And I guess there aren't as many interesting camouflage options as there are on many other topics because it's just a T-34. So usually it's kind of just green. <laughs> <laughs> but I do I do like it. One of the projects I'm working on now is actually a 57 millimeter T-34, one of the few that were used, which is, of yeah. course, the same kind of turret. Um, that's been a long-term project, but it's coming along well, and I'm I'm pleased with it. It is for Mike, too. Are you working on one as well? No, not not that variant. I, I've got okay. uh, the, the the one I've always well. There's there's two. The uh, the STZ version of of the forty one forty two is is kind of a favorite of mine. Particularly the later yeah. ones before the factory capitulated. You know, just the one that has just about every STZ feature on it. You could you could f- expect yeah. to find on it. I really like those. I also like the uh, the eighty fives that were the first ones, the first D five T armed ones that were built. Uh, actually, is the model forty three T thirty four eighty five, which. Still, I've got a couple of resin turrets, but still, still waiting for. I'd like to see that one kitted in plastic completely. The uh, the latest mini art was a little bit later turret with the D five T gun. It's a little bit different shape. When it first came out, I thought they were the same, but I've I've had to learn a few things uh, since then. But uh, hopefully, mini art will cover these. Now I've picked up the uh, Tiger models old resin kit of the STZ. So we'll see if that ever gets built, but <laughs> at least I have one now to back up a little bit in, in my history, I, I got, I returned to model railroading and I always considered myself more of a railroad modeler because I was in HO scale and I was building railroad subjects, but I was never really that gung ho about having a layout. There was a particular railroad from the Southern United States that I, I followed the Clinchfield railroad. Mm-hmm. And I, I like from the part of the country I grew up in, in East Tennessee and uh, North Carolina area, and just got into, you know, the very nuanced specifics of the equipment of that railroad and was building those things. But uh, since then I've kind of got out of it again, partly precipitated by the fact that we moved to a different house and it just, the, 
the space wasn't as conducive and, uh, I thought I had too many hobbies. Um, you, you just said, <laughs> you just said that, uh, you're kind of revisiting it again now. Yes. So in my parents' house where I lived before, we have a model road in the basement. That's kind of been a long time coming off and on working on that. Uh, it's about nine by 13 feet, maybe. So a, a fairly decent size loop. Uh, working on that with my father, of course, helping me solder everything when I was younger. And I also I have a younger brother as well who's also interested in model railroading. So he now he's kind of taken over that uh, that loop. But now, now that I've moved out, I have got behind me in my workspace here. This is something that I built. Well, my, I built this with my dad earlier. It's a modular style, so it can actually fit the back of my car. But it's set up here. It's about ten feet long, basically just a, a short switching layout. That's still very very bare bones at the moment, but. I do enjoy for motor routing two aspects, two aspects the most. I enjoy like slow speed switching operations uh, with a, usually like a modern era kind of theme to them. And the second thing I enjoy is weathering stuff because <laughs> that kind of also goes into the model tanks and everything like, like that. I just love sitting down and spending a whole evening weathering something. Uh, I don't, and I don't so much enjoy painting because I find I struggle with the airbrush a little bit. So at least with a model road subject, it's already painted. So I just start weathering. I don't have to worry about the decals or any of that stuff unless I'm going to change anything. But it's a, it's a great subject for just like a quick thing where I can just sit down and start weathering. And it's good practice because that, that is, that's exactly right. I, I, I agree with that a lot that uh, it's a, from, from the weathering aspect, there's, there's a lot of crossover there. Uh, because it's it's big metal equipment sitting outdoors yeah. all the time and not getting got not getting maintained to the highest degree necessarily sometimes oh, yeah. yes but often not but uh, <laughs> uh, well with model with model writing stuff you can really go overboard with the weathering and it's still it's still completely you know realistic and everything though some of those things look like disasters on rails but they're just so cool do you find yourself testing out new products and techniques there first I think that I've experimented somewhat on model railroading with some new techniques, but I kind of use the same stuff as I do in armor, which I find is whenever reading a model railroader magazine or something like that, I know it's uh, usually it's older guys writing these articles and they're doing kind of more of the old school techniques where it's like, you know, dry brushing, acrylic right. paints, pan pastels, and so on. Um, there is some mention, of course, of like the newer stuff and mainly it's people using like AK interactive enamel, rust washes and streaking grimes. But um, I enjoy kind of doing the same kind of stuff I do on model tanks where I do like oil work and not so much pigments, but a lot of oil work and like chipping with, with brush acrylics and so on. It's similar techniques. Um, perhaps I do try out some more heavy weathering techniques on model routing stuff. Like I've been using hairspray chipping there recently for really beat up finishes. You can go a lot harder than you can on a tank. Um, at least within reason, of course, you can do whatever you want if you want a really heavily weathered tank. You could probably also go go to a uh, a model railroad club meeting and really blow some minds. <laughs> yeah, sh- showing them those techniques because that was my experience as well. Uh, I had a clinic I did. I used to be involved with the National Model Railroad Association uh, chapter here in, in Lexington, and I did a it was a paint decal and weathering presentation, a slideshow, PowerPoint, and. Yeah, it was a big paradigm shift for a lot of those guys. There's a lot of a lot of guys at the time I was probably 30, but the, most of the membership was still 
15 to 20 years older than me at the time because that, that is to a large extent an older hobby i think to a large degree and it's just a lot of it was really novel where i've been doing on tanks forever i just kind of brought it from the military modeling side and brought it into my model railroading yeah like you said it's actually it's entirely applicable because it's the same kind of subject it's basically a flat hunk of metal that just gets chipped and worn and sun blasted or, or sun faded and sandblasted and just completely beat up um, so yeah, the crossover of techniques seems completely natural. Evan? Yes. I got a question for you. You're 16 years old. You're modeling tanks and some model railroading stuff. You're in high school. What possesses you to start a YouTube channel? Uh, complete boredom, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's... Hey. Yeah, boredom is the mother of invention. Yeah, uh, at the time I was at that time I was also getting into watching the YouTube modeling channels. I hasn't really I hadn't really done much of that before, but around that time I was watching a lot of YouTube videos, which were like guys at the time. It was QDC, Coladito One, and Hamilcar Barkas were the three guys I watched the most. And QDC and Hamilcar Barkas are still making YouTube videos to this day. But I remember watching their videos and enjoying like the community aspect where they're they're sharing their techniques, but they're also making like video responses to other people. Everyone's talking in the comment section. It's all, it's all very nice and polite. Everyone's sharing techniques. It's all just a really great community. And I thought, cause I enjoyed weathering and I was like, maybe I can kind of do my own thing here where I join the community and, and learn from guys and then give back with my weathering techniques that I, that I enjoy uh, just having fun with. So that's kind of how I got started. I, I just kind of wanted to make YouTube videos sharing my passion of the hobby, especially my passion of weathering. Had you ever done video editing? Any, I mean, did you have any background in any of that? Or did you just cold, hey, this looks neat. Let's try it. Yeah, no, I just went in there with my family's video camera. And I think just like the stock Windows Movie Maker on the on the computer. I really didn't know what I was doing in the first YouTube videos. Um, show that I had I had never done any any editing before on any video stuff like that, uh, apart from like PowerPoint presentations. But well, Windows Windows Movie Maker is pretty basic, so that's kind of applicable. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just I just went in there and kind of figured out as I went along, and I still kind of struggle with the editing aspects of it because it's quite complicated, and I'm I'm still trying to keep it fairly basic so I can speed that process up and just get the videos done. But yeah, no, I just went in there blind basically. Well, to back up from Dave's question, Dave, you can get back in with another one after this, obviously. But uh, ha- have you ever stopped other than, you know, by necessity for your education or whatever? Is this is this always been since you since you started, uh, particularly with the armor modeling? Has this been a continuous effort by yourself? Or uh, yourself? Yeah. No, I, I haven't really had any reason to stop. I do. I actually do enjoy the aspect of filming and sharing it. It's also a kind of a good way to document it for myself to remember how I did certain techniques and what worked and what didn't. Uh, like you said, I, I had to stop a couple of times just to focus on my education, which, you know, isn't fun, but that's the priority of course. And usually while I do stop the videos, I still work on it in the background a little bit. Um, exactly, as we yeah. discussed before, like I can just, spend a weekend if I have a little bit of free time and I can completely weather a, a model railroad boxcar or something like that, which I wouldn't be able to do if it was a, a model tank because of that takes much more time, but quick projects, you know, working on a little bit of stuff here and there is always good to relax. And this hobby is always good for that. 
Well, there, I ask because the uh, the reoccurring theme with a lot of these 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 modelers that get interviewed on the various podcasts is they they were in it as a kid and they got to be sixteen. It was girls and and <laughs> and cars and beer and they stop for a while and they come back into it. And I've always been well, I've always felt that was a bit foreign to me because I I never did that. I never quit. Uh, yeah. I, I, I just, I got more serious about it. Now, when I was in school and I didn't have the space when I was in, in the dormitories in, in college, um, I had a little bit of my equipment there and I would, I'd work on a few things every now and then when I had time, but I didn't have a lot of time in engineering school as you, as you well know. Yeah. But when I come home for holidays, uh, I, as the bench was there, I'd bring the other tools back and I would, I'd keep on going. I, I really never quit. I, I in school, I, I've, have you ever done this? Have you ever gone to pre-pandemic, of course, have you ever gone to a model show anywhere that required travel and actually sat in a hotel room in the evening and done homework? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of years ago, I went to the Heritage Con, probably 2018. I honestly can't remember. Uh, maybe maybe 19, but I think 18. Uh, Heritage Con, which is just south of Toronto there. I met some cool guys like John Bonani there, JB Closet Modeler. Yep. Um, and yeah, so I, I was in the hotel room and I, you know, I, first thing I did was sat down with my laptop and started typing up some more of my chemistry report or whatever I was working <laughs> on, whatever I was supposed to be doing that weekend. <laughs> yeah. And that was a real drag, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. But then it's nice to just completely forget about that the next morning and, yep. you know, spend a couple hundred dollars on kits at a modeling show that you don't really need to build <laughs> uh, a quick a quick uh aside on on heritage con hopefully if they're back on the regular rotation next year uh maybe we'll I get get to see you face to face yeah now that i'm out of university and i have more freedom i do look forward to going to more and more modeling shows i was planning to go to the world expo what was that 2020 <laughs> now it's 2022 the one in eindhoven I was planning on flying there and meeting some of the, the European buddies of mine and so on. Oh, that's cool. And before you ask, no, I'm not going to Vegas this year. <laughs> uh, it sounds really fun, though. It is. Um, maybe, honestly, if the world's looking a lot better, maybe next year. Is it Texas next year? The, o- the next? Omaha next year, Texas okay. the year after. And let me tell you, uh, Omaha, I've, I've been to a lot of nationals, like 25 of them. And I've been to two, the last two in Omaha, and they are some of the best nationals. The space is fantastic. The location, you know, you wouldn't think Omaha, you know, but for a model contest, lots of people can get there very cheaply. Uh, There's usually a huge Canadian contingent. In fact, uh, my favorite story is that the uh, hotel that's one of the two convention hotels in Omaha has as part of the benefit for staying there, a free beer and wine happy hour uh, from <laughs> like five to seven thirty, And the look of absolute horror on the hotel employees faces as the Canadian contingent, frankly, nearly drank them dry. <laughs> <laughs> it oh, was, yeah. It, they had never seen anything like that. It was amazing. <laughs> and the Canadians thought they were in heaven. <laughs> yeah, I've been to a couple of good shows. Like I was at the World Expo 2017 in Chicago. I've been to Heritage Gun, of course. I've been to the local shows here. And I I do love the aspect of the show. And I wish we had more that were close to where I live here. Because I just love going there, looking at all the models, you know, getting some good deals. But also just me- meeting people 
and chatting with people. And I guess sometimes people recognize me and it's, it's pretty fun, but uh, I actually find, I, I have more fun recognizing other people and being like, Hey, <laughs> you're that guy from Facebook. <laughs> right <laughs> now. Okay. You've got seven years of videos on your YouTube channel. Yes. Have you gone back and looked at the evolution of your modeling style over those seven years? Because it's a fascinating, I mean, I've, I've looked at a number of them from back to the beginning all the way to now, and it's fascinating the evolution that your your techniques have gone through. Of course, now part of that is there's so many more modeling and weathering products. Yes. But in addition to that, you're just doing a lot of things completely differently than you used to. Well, I started off um, doing the basic techniques, you know, which is basically just you dry brush it, maybe do a little bit of chipping. Honestly, it was probably at least a year before I even started doing things like a pin wash. Uh, it was basic pigments before that, you know, but because um, at the time, you know, when you're first getting used to it, you're you're more focused on just being able to put the kit together in a good way, you know, working with some basic photo wedge, getting that down having a smooth paint finish, maybe, you know, you're not really focused on any of the fine techniques, like maybe making cast textures or like color modulation or all that crazy stuff. But after a point, I, I don't know. I, I, I sometimes go back and look at my early videos and listen to my squeaky little voice. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's fun to look back on that and see like the points where I had major changes in my, my style and my kind of ideas on it. But I think like you said, um, I kind of came into the hobby at a point where, well, now certainly, but it's like in the past decade, we've had a lot of 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 uh, innovation in like weathering products, convenience products, MIG Ammo, AK Interactive, before that, MIG Productions, like pre-made washes and all this good stuff that's now become so much more prevalent. It's It's really been helpful, especially for somebody like me who at the time was like, I don't know how to do any of this stuff, but I can just go to the store and I can buy a wash or a rust streaking grime and kind of just watch the, the AK interactive associated YouTube video explaining how to use it. And then that really helps you um, get a good grip on some basic techniques. And then of course, once I got a grasp on them, then I would make my own video saying how I use the product and any other ways you can use it. Maybe you can use it also as a wash and other stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I think that the, the birth of, uh, or at least the, the, the explosion in convenience products in the past years kind of happened around the same time that I was getting interested in that kind of stuff. And it went hand in hand with, in, uh, with my, with my progression of weathering. Well, I'll, I'll go there. Cause you, you brought this, the squeaky little voice that was you. So <laughs> it's fair game now. It, it's, it, it's, it's kind of been like watching one of those child actors grow up on a sitcom, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but your, your work stands alone, man. It's, it's, you do a great job and, uh, it's been, it's been fun. I've, I've learned a lot from you. This old guy here has learned a lot from you. Um, thank you. Got, got, got me to try some new things. Oh, I remember one more thing I got get got to get in. Uh, one of your neighbors up there, Ian McCauley, says uh, he taught you everything you know. Is that true? Um, you know what? That's not entirely false because he <laughs> is part of he's part of the local modeling group we have here, which meets in the local hobby shop. Like the we have a couple of local hobby shops here in Ottawa. We're very fortunate to still have brick and mortar shops that are really nice here. So my favorite one is the Hobby Center here, which has recently expanded in the past couple of years and they've got like all the kits, all the airplanes. They've even got model routing, lots of tanks. They got lots of weathering products, especially in the past few years. And they host in the evenings of certain days, 
you know, before COVID, of course, we had like, you know, you could just show up and hang out with all the crotchety old guys. <laughs> I mean, I was about, that, that's what it was because when I was first going there, I was about 15, 16 years old, right? Right about when I started the channel. I think a little bit before then I was going to the, um, to these meetings and I learned a lot of stuff there because the first couple of times I went there, I was still using that. I've got it here next to me as like a reminder, the plastic cement for models, testers, red tube glue stuff, oh, yeah. that horrible stuff from like, you know, <laughs> 1800 or whatever. <laughs> like, it, it I was still it's, using it's older that. than me. Yes. Yeah. I, I was still using that. And one of the first things that those guys showed me was Tammy extra thin cement, which was like <laughs> crazy to me. Like, wow, look, it actually, it spreads itself out. You don't have to wipe it around with a toothpick. Where and have they, you been all my life? I know they, some of them gave me some free kits to, to practice with and start off with like armor models and stuff and stuff. And they, they definitely did help me. Like they, they showed me how to use the stretch sprue uh, for like weld seams and so on. It you know taught me about history and all the stuff. Like a, a lot, I know a lot of talk about Sherman's went on there and so on. And they, while they definitely didn't teach me everything they know, I know they're having fun, but they definitely were a big step in my growth as a modeler that they, that they, you know, like saw this young kid, 15 years old, showing up to the meetings and they, they treated me like one of the one of their own, right? Like yeah. I was part of the I was a part of the old old the, the old, old guys group or right. whatever. Well, that's all very very familiar because I was you know I was hanging out at the hobby shop at, at your age a lot you know especially after I got my driver's license I, I'd be down there you know I, I'd figure out a way to put it between where I was going and where I yeah. was every, almost every single time I got in the car it seemed like and we eventually started an IPMS chapter in my hometown in Tennessee. And, uh, there was, weren't many of us. And I ended up being treasurer of the IPMS chapter we formed there. And I think we lied on the, on the, uh, the IPMS charter form because I wasn't 18 yet. (laughs) And and the only reason it worked is because we didn't have any money. So I really didn't have any responsibilities. It just, you had, you had to fill the slot. So you had a fake IPMS ID. Uh, pretty much. I think so. <laughs> okay. I'll pretend I didn't hear any of that. Yeah. <laughs> Dave's the secretary of uh, recruiting and retention for the IPMS USA. So. For the national. Yeah. So. Um, uh, do me one favor, Evan. It's next time you're at a meeting and you see Steve Sove, walk up behind him and slap him upside the head. Just <laughs> tell him it was for me. Steve and I have known each other for many many years and uh we in fact about the only time i get to see him is at ipms national contests which unfortunately won't won't happen this year simply simply because of you know the the travel restrictions still being in place yeah so evan one thing we get a lot of is uh well Folks have finally stopped asking so much because I think they know we're not going to do it. Uh, you guys should be making YouTube videos. You guys should be making YouTube videos. I'm like, no, I only have enough time in my life to do this <laughs> podcast with, without a video element. You know, we've heard some of the other guys talk about how long how long it takes them to make these videos. What, what's something like that for a typical production of yours? Uh, what are you looking at, you know, for uh, the time commitment to, to do that? Honestly, it depends. If it's something like a basic video where I'm doing maybe a review of a set of tracks or like photo watch or something, like a, a review of something that's just maybe even a kit, you know, that's actually pretty quick because you just film it. Maybe that takes you 45 minutes total. And then I've already got like 
default editing file setup, which has the opening and all the proper stuff for a kit review, for example. So I just dump in the footage, edit it down a little bit. Um, and that's, you know, that might take me a total of like four hours, maybe even less, like, um, depending on the length of the video, of course, but I, maybe some of them I've even done it like an hour or so if it's a really quick video looking at a, a small piece of aftermarket. But then if I get into something like, we're going to weather this KV-1, you know, that's, that's a lot bigger project because you have to, of course, you have to do all the weathering and you're also filming it, which I've got a lot better at, um, having the camera angles and kind of knowing what to do just to make it not be a bother while I'm working. Um, but usually about half your footage ends up being out of focus or bad lighting, bad angle, something like that, you know, wasn't zoomed in properly, but you just have to kind of think about that. And honestly, if you show the whole weathering process, the video gets way too long. So you just show certain parts, this technique on a few areas, then you move on. Um, and then when you edit it, that's probably most of the effort because you have to cut off all the beginnings and endings of the clip where you're fiddling with the camera. I have to do the voiceover, speed it all up, get rid of stuff that's unnecessary. I don't, I don't write scripts for my videos. I just do it live. Often I have to kind of redo some parts because I don't know what I'm talking about sometimes. But if I were writing scripts, it'd take way too long. But it's, it's not a painful process. I do have... I do have enjoyment in that because it's almost like I'm rewatching my, my video or my process and kind of reflecting on what, what looked best, what I did and what I'll, what I'll take next time. And, you know, maybe I'll, I'll keep that the same, but I'll do the chipping a little bit differently. I'll do a different color. And also, you know, like when you're taking photos of your models, sometimes you see all the, all the crap you can't see when you're actually looking at it in real life. <laughs> Same yeah. kind of thing in the video. You know, you can see like, oh yeah, there's definitely like lint right there in that bit of paint I put on or whatever. And that's kind of like a, a learning thing as well. You know, you see where you can improve and where you can fix some stuff afterwards while I'm editing. So it is a lot of work, you know, if I'm, I, I don't want to say it doubles the time on a project because that's not entirely true. Honestly, I just sit down sometimes on an e evening and just kind of plow through the, the uh, editing of a video. I do find that a build video is a lot more effort than a weathering paint or painting video. And I don't really know why, because it seems like you're just building a kit, but it, I don't know. It's just, I think it's because when you're, when you're painting and weathering, you're kind of doing the same thing over and over again. You know, I'm just applying a wash. I'm just applying some streaks. But when you're building, you're putting a lot of different parts together and it's a lot more complicated and it feels like you have to show a lot more steps of it or something like that, even though the steps might be shorter because they're individual parts or something. It just takes a lot more effort. And I find that I don't as much enjoy making videos of me building something. And also I find that they're not maybe as helpful. Uh, at least this is in my mind. Other people might have a different opinion, but you know, if I'm building a kit, I'm just following the instructions usually, and I'm not really teaching many, many tricks here. You know, maybe if I'm adding texture or I'm adding photo etch or stuff like that, then I'm, then I'm, you know, actually adding something to what the kit instructions show. But, you know, there's no instructions in the kit how to paint and weather it. So that's kind of what I, what I think is more what I enjoy showing people. But I also... I also enjoy also sometimes showing simple videos. Like I've got a T34 project I'm working on now, a T3457. And I did film the build of that, but I focused more on modifications, texture, weld seams, you know, what makes the 57 millimeter variant unique. So you, the unique factory features and the gun and the special tracks. 
I'm not so much showing how to like sand road wheels or how to glue a hull together without seam lines. I'm doing like the, the, the special features of that vehicle and a couple of tricks like the photo etch and thinning the fenders and adding a little bit of damage there. I noticed on your YouTube channel, you're a little bit different than some of the guys out there. Some of the guys out there are rigid schedules. They'll post a, a video every week or every two weeks like clockwork. And I understand because your life and, you know, going to college, graduating, moving out, et cetera, that, you know, everybody has other things in their lives. But do you have any set idea of how often you want to release a video or just whenever you've got something to say? That has been on my mind now that I'm at the point where I'm going to start making videos again. And for a period I did try to have a video. I was trying to upload on like a, I think I was doing like Sunday or Saturday morning. I think it was doing. And I was like, you know, once every two weeks or maybe once every week, but always on the Saturday morning. So, and there's a couple of benefits to that. First of all, people, people like, you know, well, same thing with like night shift videos. Like you go on after work on a Friday, you know, there's going to be a night shift video there. And that helps like, cause you can just relax with that. So same thing with that. Like if you're uploading a video at the same time, every week or every two weeks or even every month. But that same time, people know when to tune in. And also YouTube, the algorithm, you know, the magical algorithm does prefer uh, in terms of sharing your content around other people, they prefer people who have a rigid schedule. But I mean, I don't do this as a job, right? This is my hobby. So it's a little bit, if I'm going to be doing it every week, it kind of starts to feel like a job. And then is a little bit of a, um, it just gets a little bit more stressful because you have to, you know, you're like, I have to get this done. I have to get this stuff done my project. And you start speeding up and you start skipping stuff and you're not as pleased with your results as you would be if you took your time and had a more relaxing endeavor with that whole tank or this technique. And so sometimes I have been doing like weekly, like when I was doing a collaboration with Night Shift about a year ago, or I think it was around March, 2020, maybe April when we did the Tiger Ones, I had to start ahead of time because I couldn't keep up with him. He, you know, he does like a video every week. <laughs> and I was basically at the end, at the final video, I was like doing the couple steps like the day before that video went up. But for the first video, that was like a month before, or that video posted like a month after I'd done those techniques. So I had to give myself a head start to be able to film all these sections of the video so that they would actually fit into my schedule because I couldn't do the individual steps fast enough on a weekly basis. That's also part of the reason why I have been doing more like 45 minute long wedding videos where you look at the whole thing. Like we're going to go from maybe not painting it, but we're going to start at like, you know, we've, we've applied the decals in the last video. Now we're just going to do filter, wash, streaking, dust, mud. And like, we're going to do basically the whole weathering process. I prefer to do that and then do that like once a month rather than having individual videos on a weekly basis, because I don't know, it's just a little bit more relaxing to, uh, to do the whole. And I, I think that it, it's a makes a little bit more sense to see the whole process like that. I mean, night shift does a great job of doing the individual techniques on a, in a weekly basis on his videos. So I don't know. <laughs> well, Evan, one of my, one of my favorite videos of yours. And I, and I think I even, when it was on your, on your YouTube page, well, not your, your Facebook page that supports your YouTube channel. I, I think I even made a comment about it. I, th- I thought it was your, your most 
um, concise and succinct video for, for doing what you do. And that was your how to weather us olive drab. And I, you know, personally, I'd like to see some more of those for some of the other colors because, uh, I, I really thought that, that video you're hitting on all cylinders. That's the only way I know how to say it. I, I would agree. That video was almost like an experiment for me with something I wanted to do, which you just touched on, which was, I wanted to do how to weather olive drab, how to weather four BO green, and then I was going to do like a panzer gray, um, panzer yellow, and then you get into like too much stuff after that. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I that was the plan. And I kind of was hoping on following it up with like the T-34 that's behind me here that's been sitting idle for well, since August of last year, almost a year now. Um, and I, I just the going back to my final year of university after my internship around that time was like, just uh, that's what put a big hold on all my videos. But I do want to do kind of like what I was saying there, right? I want to look at more of just like a full process. And I guess that's not a full process because we don't do the mud and the dust. But I feel like the mud and the dust is more generic because if I'm doing a Russian tank and an American tank, they both end up being green. So when I'm applying the pigments and the mud and stuff like that, you know, it's it's basically the same process. Yeah, that makes um, sense. But then when it, when it comes to actually weathering the paint finish, it's a little bit different. So that, I, I do want to do more of those. And I think when I do the T-34, I'm going to do the same kind of thing, which will be how to weather 4BO green after I do the build video on it. It looks to me like that is the video on your entire channel that's had the most views by a fair amount. So obviously it's that that was something that there was a lot of demand in. How many views does it have right now? 52,000. That's not bad. That's probably... I don't think that's the most viewed, but that's probably fifth most viewed, maybe fourth. Um, I, I'm I'm looking down, and he's got a lot of videos. I've yet to, <laughs> I've yet to find one, find one with more. I think I, I think the not- standard weathering procedure on the Panzer One Desert and the Stoke Three F Eight definitely. I think they're both over a hundred thousand by now. Yeah, the the painting yeah. field applied camo with Tamiya paints on oh, the yeah. Stug was one hundred and twenty nine. So. Yeah. Yeah. Some of these videos, they just seem to explode. And I think it's, well, I mean, having a good thumbnail seems to definitely help. And that's something I need to get better at. But sometimes a video um, just seems to take off. And I'm not really sure why. Like, I've got one, which is like the top five beginner weathering techniques, which is probably a little bit more advanced than beginner, beginner weathering techniques. But I think it's more like if a beginner wants to take the next step into weathering. I think that's kind of what that video was more supposed to be. That video did really, really well. That's probably my most viewed video. I think it has like hundreds of thousands of views now. And, you know, I could keep making content like that, that kind of caters towards making a lot of views, but I don't know if I want to, like, I don't want to force my own content. It's going to start feeling like a a job again, like I was saying before. Sure. Sometimes I just want to, like, review a a new kit, like, uh, or review some metal tracks. It's just... It's more I just want to share with my with my loyal follower base, essentially, um, kind of just, you know, what I'm up to. And I don't know, it's, kind of, it's a little bit, my channel is a little bit informal in that way where I just kind of want to hang out with people in the comments section or in the videos and just kind of be like, yeah, this is what I think of this new kit. You know, there's some new techniques I want to try. Here's a new product you haven't heard of. But I do want also want to do those videos that are kind of more generic, like how to weather for BO Green, I think would be a cool one. Yes, it would. And, and that that's one of the things Mike and I have enjoyed most about doing the podcast is all of the interaction 
either through email or through our Facebook page when, you know, you just somebody out of the blue drops a comment uh, that leads to a discussion that you never even considered before or one that got you rethinking something that you always did. It's, you know, this is a solitary hobby, but it's amazing when you get together with other modelers, the synergy that can take place. Yeah, I agree. And I think as I touched on earlier, when I first started with the YouTube videos, it was because I enjoyed the YouTube modeling community on those, at the time, few, few YouTube channels that actually did it. Of course, now there's maybe even thousands of YouTube modeling channels. Oh, but yeah. At the time, there was maybe like five big ones, at least the ones that I that I watched. There was mainly just three. But I did enjoy the community. Like It was just like, you know, it, yeah, like it's a solitary thing. Often you're doing it alone when you're actually building the kit. But when you're like sharing what you learned, um, then it's more of like a community group activity where you're talking with other people and you're learning from their mistakes and what they've done in the past. And that's also why I enjoyed when I first started going to that local club who taught me everything I know <laughs> when I was 15 years old, I kept going every, every two weeks when we had it because it was just so much fun. And I mean, I'm just a 15 year old kid. So what else do I have to do on a week weekday <laughs> evening? Um, just go hang out with the old dudes and just talk about old model kits, I guess it's, it's, I just, I love the community here. And I guess it's also why I want to go to more shows because that's almost like the community, but actually in person, it which is. to me is something that's, a little bit missing with the lack of shows here, really. One of the great things about going to shows is that ability to meet and talk in person with guys that you have only interacted with online. Yeah. Because it's it just adds a whole nother dimension to the interaction. And then once you've done it, once you've interacted with somebody at a show, next time you're interacting with them online – it's different because you 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 know them in a different way. Yeah. Uh, when I was at the Chicago 2017 World Expo, I did meet some guys I knew from YouTube. And honestly, when I met them at first, it was like I already knew them a little bit because sure. even though we've, you know, maybe we Skyped a little bit or we, and we just watched those videos and talk in the comment section, but it's like, you already kind of know this person a little bit. So it's almost like you're catching up with an old friend from school or whatever but then after after the show, it's just so much better whenever you're talking with them online because you actually know that person. And then you can't wait to meet them again at the next show, really. Yep. So Absolutely. I miss that so much. Absolutely. Well, and the, your local scene seems good too. You know, Dave and I have a have a have been longtime members of a a really really strong club in the in Louisville, Kentucky down here. And it, it just seems like when we first started the podcast, I, I was, yeah, I was like, God, everybody's from Ottawa. What's going on up there? <laughs> and, uh, you know, Ian and I've got to be pretty good friends and, and, and Chris has been on the show and we're going to get them guys back on at some point here in the, in the near future. But, uh, it's just been great getting to know those guys, but it just seems like you got some good shops up there and you have a really good community. Well, and, and in addition to that, man, the Canadians really punch above their weight when it comes to modeling. I mean, it it is amazing how big a presence the Canadian modelers have on the modeling scene. Yeah, I remember you talking about this during uh, Chris's interview, Modeler Plane Maker. Yeah. And I kind of didn't really 
it wasn't in my mind before because I've only really known the modeling scene here and I haven't really gone internationally that much. I mean, you guys are the experts and I'm sure that, I, I don't know, I, I, I personally like here, it's just, it's what I've always known. All the modeling shops that we have here in the community has been great, but I guess I'm, I guess I'm a little privileged uh, with how other people have it in other places. Well, I think we are too, but uh, yeah. that's, that's what makes it, makes it fun. Great, grateful to have it. I'm sure you are too up there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now I'm going to ask a question that just got to ask. We talk about all the benefits of the, you know, modeling online, YouTube, social media, etc. Other than what we discussed about the time it takes for you to, to actually produce a video, have you encountered any downsides from your YouTube experience? You know, sometimes they get like some troll comments that are like really just low effort. <laughs> low effort. And, uh, I like that. You, you just like, I honestly haven't had anybody really go after me and be really that mean. I just occasionally get a troll comment and I'm just like, yeah, often I'll just leave it. And sometimes I've had people in my comment section, like take care of them for me, tell them to <laughs> tell them to get lost or whatever. I mean, sometimes if they're, if they do it a couple of times, I'll just block their channel. But cause if they're, it, if you're not really contributing to the intelligent discussion in the comments section, um, there's not really much point to it. I mean, the YouTube comments section, not in modeling videos, but in general and just normal videos is usually like one of the worst places on the internet. Oh, it's just oh, full of it's so a, much it's filth. A, <laughs> yes. It's but, a, it's a sewer. Yeah. The modeling channels are, are pretty good. Um, so I don't want it. I don't want it to become like that. So I, um, I mean, yeah, we have a pretty good community, so I haven't really seen much of that at all apart from the occasional troll, but, no, I haven't really had anybody like bully me or make fun of me or I had somebody re-upload one of my videos once. So I thought it was kind of weird. <laughs> really? You mean yeah, they pirated it, the video? Yeah, they downloaded it and re-uploaded it. And then they had huh. like 30 views and I just told YouTube to get rid of it. <laughs> but overall, it's uh, there's. I think the only really downside to making a YouTube modeling channel is just the extra effort it takes to, to do the videos and the editing and stuff. And it's just, you know, you could, if you weren't doing videos, you know, maybe you could get an extra kit in per year with that time, but I don't really want to, I I enjoy sharing it. And I find that I'm I'm not only sharing, like when I, when I upload a video and I, and I show a technique or whatever, I get good feedback in the comments as well. And that helps me progress. You know, people share their techniques or other videos or so on. And definitely, it's not a one-way street. I, I get I get good feedback back from it as well. Well, our experience with the podcast has been, you know, we we get, we get some feedback about you know helping with techniques and stuff, but there's only so much we can do in an audio format for that kind yeah. of thing. We give we can give suggestions and and tell how we do things, and maybe somebody can go look online and find a video of something similar and, and go from there. But uh, we get a lot of comments about, uh, and a lot, largely because of the pandemic. It's 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 what we've what, what having these these podcasts has meant to other people, and you know, we talked before we started recording about uh, how how it's nice to be able to listen to something without the video distraction uh, that's related to your interests, and and we get a lot of that. But uh, you know, we get a lot of feedback from folks who have been isolated from their clubs and their communities uh, because of the pandemic, and uh, we've kind of helped fill the void there. So that's been fun. Do you, do you get much of that? Um, I'm not too sure. I I, I mean, it's probably I. I expect so, honestly, but I haven't really had many people comment about that, uh, mainly because it's not really much different than what I was doing before, and they might be kind of used to it. 
and what I do get is people checking in on me sometimes when I don't upload videos in a while, making sure I haven't, <laughs> I've died of the COVID or whatever, like <laughs> people yeah. making sure I'm all right. And I do appreciate that. In your modeling journey, what's, what's your, what's your favorite part of the hobby? Do you think? And my favorite part of building a model is the weathering aspect of it. And my favorite part of the hobby might be sharing that or, or just the, the whole, the whole encompassing aspect of weathering, including looking at other people's videos, looking at people's posts on Facebook, chatting with them on the Facebook posts about how they did this weathering thing. I I mean, I also enjoy building. As I said before, I, I painting I find is my weak link. I like building stuff. I find that painting is a struggle for me sometimes. And then decaling is always just a nightmare. Um, <laughs> and then when I get to weathering, like I've now jumped the barrier that was the painting and now I can get into weathering and I really like that. So... Yeah, uh, I like weathering and I enjoy sharing and learning from the people about weathering as well, because that's just, that's where I find I can be most creative. And I just love to sit down and spend a whole evening breathing in enamel thinner fumes and (laughs) 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 And making a tank look dirty. Well, maybe you you already answered it in the, in the kind of, uh, in explaining your answer to that question prior, but what do you like the least? Trolls, yeah. uh, trolls on your YouTube channel excluded. You've already mentioned that, but uh, in, in, yeah, in well, the process, in the like, process of, of modeling, what what's the what's the biggest drag for Evan? Yeah, like I said, painting I find is the part that makes me sometimes put a model away for a little bit. I've got a lot of kits that are actually. I think I probably have more kits that are built and then sitting there in the finished plastic than I than I have actually finished in weather because I find that. Um, sometimes I just want to build a cool vehicle and I don't really think about painting it. I don't really think about how I'm going to paint it. I just want to build this interesting vehicle. And so I build it and then I'm like, well, I just, I just put it aside until I get inspiration for how to finish it. And then other times I had a vision, but I just kind of get nervous about how to execute it purely in the painting aspect. And then I guess I kind of lose my enthusiasm on that build. And then usually I have something else going on at the time. So I move on to that one and then I start something else. And then the one that was put aside kind of just tends to sit there. And I guess it's kind of sad, but at least it's something that's finished. Like if I was stopping kits halfway through the build, that's a little bit more, I don't know, disheartening, I guess for me, because then I have to like, I have to make sure I don't lose track of all the extra parts that aren't attached to it and the box and everything. Cause I might want to go back to it, but if it's a, if it's entirely built and ready for primer, you know, I, I sometimes I just let it sit for a while until I get the inspiration or the push to paint it. But I just, I don't know why I, I I'm so apprehensive about airbrushing because I actually had an airbrush before I built my first model kit because I had that from my model rarity. So when I, when I built my first model tank, I airbrushed it. Like I was airbrushing from the very start. I was not brush painting my first model tanks. Um, but I just kind of always, I don't know. Airbrushing is a little bit scary to me. I always worry I'm going to ruin the finisher. Yeah, I don't know. It's just uh, it, that's the thing I need to progress more on my uh, my painting skills. And it, you know, usually usually it ends up fine with the weathering and everything. It any little areas that weren't perfect end up being covered or fixed or everything. So it's not. It's one of those fears that's just kind of not really valid, I guess, or whatever. You know, it's it's not really something to be that worried about. But sometimes that's what. Um, stops my build process or, or stops it from progressing to weathering. Yeah. I think every modeler has, has 
whatever has that area that that can be a a choke point for them where yeah. it's okay i i'm coming up to the point where i'm doing something that either i don't enjoy or i don't feel comfortable with or i don't feel confident about one of the things that happens for me is the closer the model gets to being finished the the more hesitation i have especially if the build is going well cuz you feel like I don't want to mess it up. Yeah. Uh, for me, honestly, it's probably the opposite. The closer and closer I get to finishing something, especially in the weathering stages where I'm getting closer and closer to the end, I am more and more excited to see how it will look in the end. And I never really have problems in, in weathering that ruin a model. I've never had like, you know, something just like ruin all the paint finish or whatever, make it a bubble up or whatever. I haven't really ever experienced that. So I guess maybe if I have a nightmare scenario eventually that that might (laughs) might change my opinion here but i actually find the closer and closer i end up finishing something the more push i have and the more likely it is that i'm gonna actually finish it it's almost Mm -hmm. like the closer i get to the end the more work i'll be consistently putting on one project now i actually have something else uh for the for another part that i am apprehensive about a part of a model that i that i that might be a choke point like you said there that was a good term i also find that clear parts and decals and masking are tricky for me. And that's one of the reasons why I'm apprehensive about building aircraft because <laughs> you gotta you gotta do a lot of that. There's a lot of decals, there's a lot of masking canopies, a lot of clear parts, filling seams perfectly. These are all areas that I do not have a lot of experience in and that I I just kind of am apprehensive about. And honestly, building what? an airplane kit would be a great way for me to you know, get past those skills and improve them further in my armor models as well. But well, let me give you the one tip I can give you about aircraft modeling. All right. Don't build any model for which there are not pre-cut masks for the canopy. Life yeah. is too short. That <laughs> is to me the greatest advance in I've been modeling now uh well longer than I care to think, but uh the greatest advance in all that time in modeling has been the pre-cut canopy mask. Yeah. Because before those canopies used to take forever. They were difficult. They were, I mean, it was tricky. You could screw it up. It was un, it was the worst part of the model. Yeah. That's a big choke point. Yeah. At least for me. And now, with with pre-cut masks, the Edward ones or some of the other ones, you can mask a canopy in 15 minutes and the the result that you get once you peel the masks off, if you've sealed them and and gotten them pressed down correctly, it's amazing how much better that it looks than any the best hand masking job I ever did in my life. So my one my one tip to you as you venture into aircraft modeling is don't ever build a kit for which there aren't pre-cut masks. Similarly, one of my, like I said, I, I, I suffer a lot with decals. And so on armor kits, I have really enjoyed masking sets. You know, you don't have to put down the decals instead you get the mask that is like the star right. or the Russian slogan. Similarly, I find that's a, a way to help me along that choke point of decals. But as we were discussing before that we started recording here, um, my the kit that I have set aside to do hopefully this year, originally it was going to be last year, but now it's this year, 
the, the first airplane kit I want to do is an Edward 148 scale MiG-21 that comes with those masks. And that's one of the reasons why I bought that. I knew that this kit had the masks in it. And it's an interesting aircraft to me. I, yeah. I do enjoy aircraft. Like I know I, I took aerospace engineering. I, I like aircraft. But but because my my interest in model kits came from my history aspect, I got into it more into the armor side. But now I, I do want to do an aircraft, and I think that'll be a great learning experience. That's why I picked an easy one that has the masks and the pre-painted photo etch and everything. <laughs> well, you picked a good one, no no doubt. Well, Dave, you got anything else for Evan? Nope. Uh, this has been enjoyable as heck, man. I've really enjoyed this, and I love your YouTube channels. And now that you're you're settled into an apartment and uh, you're out of uh, out of university and uh, getting a paycheck. Yeah, now that you're doing all that, I'm looking forward to you dropping more YouTube videos, especially like like I said, others others in the series of that olive drab one, you know, four bo Panzer Gray, Panzer Yellow. Those the the first one was great, and I'd love to see a series of those. Yeah, definitely, definitely more of those coming. I've got a couple of projects set aside for um, some of those finishes coming soon, I guess. The one I said coming soon, it's probably going to be a, a month or two before I even actually get those videos up, but they'll sure. come along. <laughs> good. Well, good. We look forward to it. Evan, I'm glad we got together. I appreciate you uh, sticking with us during all this uh, scheduling back and forth over a number of months, but, uh, and our friend, our mutual friend, Ian kind of helped us out there a little bit by making, making the contact and, uh, reminding you a time or two and then yeah. it finally worked out. So, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, yeah. I wish you the best in your, your, uh, your new vocation. It'll be a good career. Keep, keep on modeling, man. We appreciate, we appreciate all you do for the community. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Well, Mike, that was an interesting discussion. We're getting to the end of a very long episode and, uh, time for shout outs. Do you have a shout out for, for this episode? Well, first off, I'd like to shout out to Chris Church and Joel Sherwood for uh, sponsoring this episode of Plastic Model Mojo. If you'd like to help out along the lines that they've helped out, uh, you can do so by going to www.plasticmodelmojo.com. In the upper right-hand corner of the homepage, you will find a heart icon. You can use that to make a direct PayPal contribution to to Plastic Model Mojo, and we really appreciate it. We've gotten big donations. We've gotten small donations. We've gotten donations all across the spectrum we appreciate all of them equally it's just unbelievable the response we've gotten to this and it's really made it a lot easier for dave and i to get our equipment together for future travel shows and uh just bringing paying the hosting costs and bringing this stuff to you guys every every other week we really appreciate it we thank you thank you so much and joel sherwood is an east tennessee fella uh lives close to my hometown i need to i need to meet up with him now that the pandemic's kind of tamp down a little bit and maybe we can uh have a face-to-face over a couple beers i was gonna say share some modeling fluid that's right share some modeling fluid my shout out this this episode is for the harder and steamback infinity i've mentioned this before i've blogged about it before but i continue to be amazed by this airbrush you know, it, it's like driving a Ferrari. It's very sensitive. It's, it's you know, it's not a Badger 150 where you can just kind of throw anything into it and spray it. 
But man, if you are spraying details, if you are spraying fine lines, or if you are spraying freehand in controlled tight spaces, this airbrush, though it is more expensive than others, this is one of those times, and there's a lot of those times, where you get what you pay for. It is an amazing airbrush. And I appreciate Jim Bates and Dr. Strangebrush turning me on to it. And every time I use it, I am amazed yet again. And boy, that Weller sounds good, tastes good. It's been an enjoyable podcast. So do you have a shout out, Mike? I got one more. It's, we're going to Go circle circle back around on that note to Mr. Ethan Curd from Versailles, Kentucky. Sir, we salute you for giving us a, a nice bottle of bourbon to enjoy to enjoy the show with and enjoy our Fourth of July holiday with. Just real good, Re- really, yeah. really appreciate it, man. I, I just when I pulled that out of the bag, I couldn't believe it. That was some. That's a good gesture. Most appreciated, sir. You are doing God's work. I'll tell you what. This is our forty-second episode. We've had a modeling fluid every single time. This is by far the best modeling fluid I've ever had on, on the show. And I salute you. You have done good work in the service of plastic model mojo. (laughs) Well, all right, Dave, I think we're at the end of this now. I think so too. Mike, let's sign off and enjoy our, our, the rest of our Weller. You know what they say? So many kits. So little time, Dave. You got it. Take care. (laughs) 